tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12. And as always, I want you to know what an honor and privilege it is to get to share the word with everyone here. Um, that I'm excited for it all week. I, I really am. And not only because it's Revelation, but just to be able to spend this time with you guys and uh, hopefully that the Lord would minister to us all through it. Uh, but like I said, we're in Revelation chapter 11. And the, message, the title of tonight's message is... 11 or 12, we just said 12. 12. 12. My apologies. Uh, 12. Revelation 12. Uh, the title of tonight's message is A Great Sign in Heaven. A Great Sign in Heaven. And just to uh, go over Revelation again, as I'm sure you guys are familiar with, John was on Patmos. Remember that God took him up to heaven and showed him these things, that he saw Jesus revealed in glory. We know that we're looking at the end of the world as we know it. And if you remember that R.E.M. song from the 90s, that always plays in my head when I read that. Uh, but we're looking at the great tribulation, trouble that the world has never seen before, that the trouble that we're seeing now in these past few years is trouble, I think, in some ways like the world has never seen before on a global scale. And it's only going to get worse. Uh, but remember that it's judgment on the nations and those who follow after Satan. And it's a last-ditch effort, I believe, uh, in God's heart, in God's way, to get the world to repent. That the world, God loves the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him shall not perish that god does not want the world to perish and yet it's come time to spank the world like it's never been spanked before because it's real and it's coming but again remember as bad as this is hell is worse and i think that from god's perspective uh that's why he's trying to wake the world up um, on top of obviously all the judgment that it's due uh, but previously uh in the past few weeks we've seen the two witnesses who i believe are uh Elijah and Moses, I believe the scripture it kind of alludes to that. Uh, we saw the beast wage war on them uh, when God allowed it and not a moment before, but that God also brought them back to life and made them ascend to heaven uh, in their presence. Uh, we saw the seventh angel sounded last week with the trumpet and the, the elders, when that happens, the elders bow down and they worship and they proclaim and uh, to God uh, that he has taken his great power that the nations were angry, but that all the world will be judged in that. That the nations rage, if you remember, we read that last week, when God decides to take up his rightful place. Uh, current events, we're going to spend even less time on current events this week, but I just want to call out some headlines that I even saw today, because I think they're so fitting, and I think they even play into what we're looking at today. Uh, but Bill Gates, if you remember, you know who he is, Microsoft fame. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Apparently he uh, is not a doctor, but he has all this say <laughs> in vaccines and everything. Uh, but he says all wealthy nations should eat 100% synthetic beef. That's not beef that they made in a lab, meat they made in a lab, but it's vegetarian beef. And again, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that if you want an impossible Whopper. Uh, but to declare that we need to do that, and everybody needs to do that, and wealthy nations, you know, America, that means no more beef, guys. That's what they want for us. To stop global warming. If you remember, we talked about cow flatulence, right? That somehow that that is the problem, and if we stop eating meat, we'll somehow save the world. Uh, I think they willfully forget the millions of buffalo that roam the West before the millions of cattle that roam the West, and I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think instead, it's really, uh, whether he realizes it or not, it's trying to defy God's word in Genesis, telling Noah to eat meat and to eat vegetables now. That before the flood, we just ate vegetables, and afterwards, God said, okay, it's not as good as it was before. You can eat meat as well. And again, not that you have to, but that it's there and available. 
I read also that Russia, you know, again, anything that's coming out of war and anything you read in the news, you really need to take with a grain of salt and hold it at arm's length and consider it. Mm -hmm. But apparently Russia wants the war to be over by May 9th to commemorate the victory over the Nazis in World War II on that day. So apparently there's some talk of that. Whether that's true or not, we shall see. I will not stand on it and claim to be a prophet and uh, <laughs> have to be stoned in May. Uh, but we saw that the White House, uh, through the puppet, uh, said that there's going to be real food shortages. That's famine. We've got famine coming. And now, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really buy that it's from Russia. I don't know how much food we got from Russia in the first place. I think it's from all these other policies and things going on. But we'll see about that. We see a Supreme, a Supreme Court nominee can't even define what a woman is. And we're asking her to have a job that defines what the Constitution is. So if that doesn't worry you, I don't know what will. Um, but uh, in Romans 128, I believe she's been given over to a reprobate mind. Mm -hmm. But as we look at Revelation, I really want to, this thought came to me during study and I want to share it. And it's really an oversimplification and overgeneralization. But if we look at the Bible as a whole, right? We look at the Old Testament through Acts, you know, I'm not talking Psalms and Proverbs, right? These other books of uh, wisdom and poetry. But we see mainly history and the redemption plan of God and its fulfillment, right? All the way from Genesis, all the way through Acts, we see the redemption plan all the way up through the church and the formation of the church. And then we have a bunch of letters from the apostles, from the founders of the church by the Holy Spirit that in, instruct us in righteousness, right? Like it says in Timothy, it's good for doctrine, instruction in righteousness. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the book, we kind of get, it's, we kind of treat it like a footnote, like it's not even there half the time. We get this book that really stands out, I think, from the rest of all the books in the Bible. Um, even in its name, Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You would think that out of all the books in the Bible, the one that calls itself the revelation of Jesus, the one, that, the, the one that's our mm -hmm. Messiah, would be the one that we want to pay the most attention to, would be the one that we want to put our, the most effort into knowing what it says. When it's the revelation of Jesus, this, we all want to see Jesus, right? The Bible's disciples said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And not to say that we need to be unbalanced and put all our effort in Revelation and not put any eggs in any other basket. I think we've all maybe even been there and known someone who's so hyper-focused on it, they miss, um, you know, they miss the forest for the trees, perhaps. But Revelation, it's everything revealed. That Revelation reveals Jesus, it reveals the Father, it reveals heaven. But truly, it's a behind-the-scenes of everything we can't see. It's a behind the scenes from the beginning until the end and even beyond. Uh, you know, the, uh, from Pentecost to the millennial reign and even the judgment can be looked at, and I believe this is the most important part, accurately, right? That we can't look at history accurately unless we look at it through the lens of Revelation. That if we take Revelation, it's revealed, right? And we look through it, right? We see through a, a, a glass darkly now, dimly like tinted windows now. But if we take Revelation up and begin to look through it and look around at our world, look around at history, look around at where the world is going, things begin to make sense. Things that didn't make sense before begin to make sense because we begin to see God's overarching plan for everything from the heavenly perspective, not tainted by an earthly perspective. Um, and I believe that that is, as the pastor in church today uh, was talking about truth bombs. I believe that's our truth bomb for today, that this should blow up our entire worldview, our entire opinions on Scripture, on our lives. The purpose of them is if we take Revelation and look at it through there and go, you know what? God's coming back 
this is what's going on. This is why things happen. Things begin to make sense. And I believe we begin to let go of the world a little bit more and be able to walk and rest a little bit easier. Uh, so with that, let's pray uh, that God would be able to speak to us and reveal to us things in his word. And God, we know that your word can only best be described and, and, and taught by your spirit and by your word. So God, we humbly ask you to uh, teach us, to instruct us in that righteousness, to reveal to us, uh, God, your word is only you can. God, we love you and we trust you for these things. Thank you that we can uh, again be together uh, in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. The word is good, and it's good to be in the word. And I hope that tonight we let it wash us. You know, it's so good. And Ash and I were talking last week, um, I think after the message, we tend to talk about it afterwards. But we were talking about practical application. She brought that up. And really, you know, how do you apply revelation, right? We like to have practical applications so often in our Bible studies, in our churches, in our teachings. And I think that that is good. We do need to have practical application because if we're all doctrine, but our lives don't match up to that doctrine, we don't put it into practice, it's kind of worthless. Uh, but I believe that there's a place for it in Scripture. You know, I think specifically the epistles are very much about practical application. Put off this, put on this. How do you handle food offered to idols, etc., etc.? But I think the practical application of, of Revelation here is getting that heavenly insight, getting that heavenly mind that the Scripture talks about, right? Having that forward-looking mind to the return of Jesus Christ. That as we walk in this earth, we're not just standing there looking up going, when is it going to happen? Has it come back yet? You know, like the disciples were told <laughs> to you know, go about the, the Lord's business, right? But have that mind and to know what's going on behind those scenes. To know what's going on spiritually so that we can practically interpret what's going on. Because if we don't know what's going on spiritually, any practical application we have, any practical insight we try and gain or make of the world is never going to be all the way there. It might be close. You know, like psychology might get close to trying to unravel the human mind and why people are they are, but they discount, they discount the spirit. And when we discount the spirit, we discount the real problem for depression. No, it's not necessarily that you're bullied. It's not necessarily that you're hooked on these things. Well, really, it's because your spirit is in need and all these other things have come in and then crushed your spirit even more because you can't handle it. Um, and that's not to say that people can't be depressed or Christians can't be, but my point is, is that unless we look at the spiritual element, we're missing everything about the practical, everything about the physical. Why? Because God does not want us to be deceived and God wants us to be ready for his return. And I think that that's the biggest practical application we can take away from Revelation, right? We're not going to be around for some of these events, and that's fine. But to know that they're coming, and to know what that end game is. Like, I, I've been watching F1 racing a lot lately, right? And I got a free trial, and I'm probably going to subscribe to get be able to watch the races live, because they happen at all times. I can't watch them around the world. And so I'm trying to avoid looking at the headlines or watching videos today to find out who won, because I want to watch it tonight. Uh, so it's like, if I knew who won, well, I know what the rest of the race is all leading to. I can figure out, oh, well, this guy crashed and this guy happened, like I found out last week. And the same thing with Revelation. If we know the end, well, when the, when the things begin to take place that lead up to the end, it'll be much easier to understand why they're happening. Oh, I understand why they want everyone to get a mark. I understand why they want a cashless society. I understand why they don't want borders. Well, it's because it's all leading up. Well, we know they want one final kingdom. They know they want everyone under one tyrannical rule. So uh, things began to make sense. 
And I'm not trying to knock the living your best life. I mean, maybe I'll knock Joel Osteen. But I'm trying to knock, you know, uh, messages that talk about how to get along with folks around you, right? I believe they're all well and good. But I think that at least us here on this call and me, myself, and I <laughs> want more spiritual meat to eat. I don't want a message about how to be better at work, right? Like, I probably need that and I probably need to apply that. But that's not my main goal in life. And so when I come down to sit at the scriptures, I want to sit down to a nice piece of steak. I don't want to sit down to what Bill Gates would approve of and many of the churches would approve of, of 100% synthetic spiritual meat. I want the real deal um, and, and have that. And I hope that as we get into Revelation tonight, uh, we'll get a taste of that. So let's look at the first six verses in Revelation chapter 12, not chapter 11, chapter 12 tonight here uh, together. So Revelation chapter 12, and again, I'm reading from the modern English version, so it might be a little different than yours, uh, but I believe it to be pretty accurate. Hey, Jakey. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Let's picture this as we read this. This is a great sign. Let's picture this. A woman clothed with the sun. I didn't say be the woman clothed with the sun. (laughs) With the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was with, was with child, so she was pregnant, and cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Uh, So let's stop there. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. I think even in just that sentence, there's a lot to to digest. But the word great is an external form even of of a sensible appearance of things. So it can even just be the way things look, the way things are. You know, you're kind of getting measurements of something is the way this word uh, talks about. It could also be a number large, abundant, great. Um, it could also mean an elder age of something that's old. You know, it was my great-great-grandfather, right? Of a rank in military, uh, of a grand scale of great things. And this great sign in heaven is a great sign. It's a big sign. And the sign is wonder, mark, unusual occurrence. That when this appeared in heaven, it's an unusual occurrence. That signs don't necessarily pop up all the time in heaven. But this one did, and John was able to bear witness of it uh, as the trumpets go, as the voices go, and as Revelation unfolds before him. And if you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16, we may have read it before in earlier studies, but it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you will say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, Jesus says, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. You know, Jesus says, has harsh words and leaves, that's kind of a big deal. But he says that you can't understand the signs of the times and the seasons, right? Like you guys can look outside and tell what the weather is going to be like. But you're spiritual people and you don't know what the spiritual seasons are going to be like? I think we're talking about that in Revelation. This should be our spiritual weather lesson that Revelation should teach us about the spiritual weather. 
and be able to understand the signs and times and things that are happening around us. Um, and if we don't, I think Jesus would have hard words for us. That means I don't intend that everyone needs to be a, revel- uh, a scholar in Revelation, but I think we need to be minded about his return and minded that there are things going on and to be interested in them, at least to some degree. You don't have to be an expert, but to some degree. But it said that the sign appeared in heaven, um, and this thing just appeared. You know, they're hanging out in heaven, the trumpet's going, the elders are, are worshiping. Then all of a sudden, this sign appears. You know, I don't know if you're picturing, it's just this, you know, on top of a white cloud, and it's just on and on forever, right? You know, I don't know what the background looks like. We only get a picture of the foreground here. But this sign appears. And if we remember back to the crystal sea before the throne, and I likened it to almost like God's TV, being able to look down and see uh, the world and the things that are happening. Again, that's kind of a weak picture. I have this sense that it almost it appears kind of in that same area, but maybe above it. Um, maybe if you've seen those holograms of uh, at concerts where they bring like Michael Jackson back to life as a hologram, and he's on stage with all the dancers, but he's not really there. It's this technology that puts him there. Um, I almost get a sense that as these signs appear in heaven, it's almost like this hologram in heaven to bring it down to our level a little bit. Um, this 3D movie playing out before all those in heaven to see. What I find most interesting, though, is that it's in heaven. A lot of times we see something happen in heaven, and then it happens on earth, the trumpet blows, things come down from heaven, and judgment happens. But this sign is in heaven. And I believe that this sign in heaven is trying to show the spiritual truth behind the events that have happened and will happen on earth. That this is a great sign. This isn't just something to be missed. It's not something to change the spiritual channel on, but it's something to pay attention to. Because if we remember, Revelation tells of many things that happen over a short and long period of time. Uh, Jesus, even in his letter to the churches, they're to the seven churches of that day, but also to the seven church ages over 2,000 years, right? Revelation is talking about things that happen in immediate sense, things that happen over a couple of years, things that happen over a longer time, over happen in the future. So um, they happen in and around each other. Uh, it's not... It's told linearly, but it's not 100% linearly, right? Like if you read the Bible, it goes back and forth sometimes. It talks about, you know, a guy who lived in this time, then a guy who lived in this time, and then Kings kind of talks about this, and there's overlap, right? Like the way we kind of expect the story to be told beginning, middle, and end is not quite the way that Revelation tells it. I would like to liken it to, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's probably not your movie type, but it's a movie called Dunkirk about uh, uh, World War II by Christopher Nolan. And he tells three different stories in the movie from three different perspectives, and they all overlap. But one's like over uh, an hour, one's over a day, and the other one's over a week. And by the end of the movie, it starts to make sense as they all start to flip together. And I kind of think Revelation kind of does that. And it's a little bit of a mind trip. Uh, That director kind of likes to play with our mind, but it's it's really more in line with the way they told... uh, stories back in uh uh their time we're so dependent on time and on our watch and is it over yet and how long is the message and is the pastor going to be done yet uh but they were more in uh they were more focused and intent on the people and the happenings themselves as opposed to um you know does it happen at one o'clock or two o'clock so if we remember that and think of it that we see that this sign is not just about what's happening right this second in heaven but throughout all of history um, and what greater sign is there than the story of redemption, of God sending his son to earth to save everybody? Uh, the sign of Jesus being foretold through a nation, right? The, the nation of Israel 
would be the, the nation that would bring forth the Messiah and be born into the world to save not just them, but all people. And so this woman, this woman is clearly Israel. If you just look at it and look at the way things happen. And there's many other interpretations here, but I believe that any other interpretation is really straining at that gnat, trying to get it to say what they wanted to say. Uh, no offense to any former Catholics, but the Catholics like to try and translate this as being Mary. And it just doesn't line up that way. Yes, Mary was the woman who gave birth to Jesus. But if we look at it in context and the way things happen and the other characters there, we see that this this woman, Mary's not on earth for the tribulation. Mary wasn't on earth for all of history. Uh, but uh, Israel uh, was and is. And if you look back to Joseph's second dream in Genesis 37, 9 through 11, it says, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down on the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And I think that last line is a good instruction to us. Whether we understand what these dreams and signs and wonders and things mean completely now or not, I think we need to keep them in mind. We need to hold them close to us like Mary even did with the words of her son. The commentary talks about other passages in Israel. is often represented as a woman, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. Um, but even if there's other women in Revelation, Jezebel is the religious system uh, that takes over the world. Uh, the great harlot is associated with that false religion we see. But then also the bride is the church. So this woman definitely isn't the church. This woman is uh, Israel. And she cries out and she gives birth to none other than the Messiah. And that's obviously clear by the other pictures uh, that are said about him taking the throne and all that. But as this sign happens, it says another sign happens. So it's like you see this woman about to give birth. Then all of a sudden, poof, you know, another heavenly hologram pops up. And it's the red dragon, a great red dragon, a large dragon. And this dragon is Satan. The Bible is clear about that. Uh, it even says it later. He has seven heads and ten horns. So that's a little scary to think about as well, a seven-headed dragon. Uh, but these are pictures of the kingdoms and rulers, in a sense, under his power during the tribulation. But I think also interesting enough that seven tends to be God's number of perfection, of completion. And ten, 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 eh. <laughs> ten tends to be associated with the law, with commandments, the tenth of your earnings, right? The Ten Commandments, the Passover lamb is selected on the tenth day. And I believe that this kind of shows not just necessarily the kings and kingdoms, which they do, and he's got this, the, the crowns on him as well, bringing this false king, kingly aspect to himself. You know, Satan wants to be God, right? And so he's trying to be God, trying to make himself God. But that Satan's earthly kingdom and power is trying to make itself look perfect. They've got the 7 and 10, right? They're trying to make it look holy in his evil way, in his self-appointed authority, uh, making himself look godly and have the powers of God over people on earth, uh, that somehow his tyranny is right. Um, and man, isn't that a lot like the, the rulers of our world today who try and say that they're doing it for our own good? Um, but that his tail, this giant dragon in heaven, his tail draws a third of the stars from heaven. And again, this shows a fall of the third of angels to follow Satan going down the earth. The commentary talks about there's four uh, falls of Satan that get listed out. What this one specifically is, it's not necessarily uh, positive one-to-one, -one, but the point is, is that 
he takes a third of the angels with him. That this dragon tries to usurp God's authority, tries to go after um, uh, Israel and the progenitor of the uh, Messiah. And he takes heaven with him. He takes a third of the armies of heaven with him as they revolt against God. Again, I, I still can't wrap my head around this. That I mean, I know I revolt against God. I know I sin against God even though I know him right. You know, Paul was aware of that. I think we all can relate to that. When we really think about it, it should break our hearts. It's like... Why do I do these things? What a wretched person that I am, right? But thanks be to Jesus. But to be in heaven, to be the leader of worship or whatever Satan was, to see the angels, to see have everything, there's not there's there's we kind of have a half excuse, right? Because we're on earth and there's this gap and we don't get to see like they see. They don't have an excuse and yet they still chose it. They willfully said, "No, you know, we don't want to believe it. It's fact, it's truth, it's laid out right in front of them." And they willfully said, nope, we're going to go with Satan. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand that. And I don't know that I, could ever, I ever could, right? You know, how could our minds ever pick up on these things? But picture this pregnant lady ready to give birth. If you ladies remember giving birth, right? I don't know if the epidural took the memory away or if you had one or not. But she's crying in pain about to give birth. And this huge dragon with all these heads and, cr- and thorns comes around. And, you know, he's not the doctor in front of the lady, it's the dragon in front of the lady, ready to eat this child as soon as it's born. Is there anything more demonic sounding than that? This creature wanting to devour a baby as soon as it's born? And it's obvious that, you know, without even having to dig too hard, that Satan is behind all the abortions in this country, in this world, all the push, California wanting to make them free. It's a vacation spot. Come here and have your abortions is what they're saying now. Even they want to do it post-birth. If there wasn't any question before about it being the woman's choice and all these things, she's now gone through birth and now still wants to have the decision to kill the baby. They even talk about doing it months afterwards, right? Like, come on, guys. They're laying their cards out on the table. It is uh, uh, obvious now. And again, back to that Supreme Court nominee. Watch the clip of her being asked about to define when life starts. And watch this laugh and look at her eyes the way she says, <laughs> I don't know. You know she knows, but she tells the answer that's, that she wants to say, right? You can see it. It's clear. There's no hiding it. But just like with Joseph, Moses, and Pharaoh all throughout history, ultimately Jesus right? The male child being born, trying to eliminate God's people from the beginning. Satan's always wanted to get rid of God's salvation plan by devouring that child. As soon as it was born, Satan wanted to be ready to do it, right? Herod killed all the babies two and under when he found out, right? That was Satan going. Satan must have missed the proclamation and the giant star, right? I don't know what he was doing, but he missed all that and he couldn't get, uh, you know, full access and he, he was prevented. The Lord prevented him from that. Uh, but ultimately, there was the killing on the cross. But that wasn't Jesus wasn't devoured then. He came back three days later. Eternally, three days is nothing, right? So he wasn't devoured there. And this child, this male child, this Messiah, is to rule all nations with an iron scepter. You know, he's going to have this um, power over earth that's iron. That's not going to. That's going to be enforced. That's going to be strong and not be broken. Um, and that's going to happen during the millennial reign. That people are not going to have choice but to be righteous for those thousand years. When that thousand years is up, God's going to go, okay, did you like it? Did you not like it when everything went well? And when righteousness ruled, was it still not good enough for you? And they're going to have that opportunity to rebel again at the end of the thousand years. And that's when we see the 
uh, finally cast down into uh, the abyss, right? Um, but man, uh, I still don't get it. Uh, we read last week Psalm 2, the nation's rage, and we talked about the iron scepter, but also Revelation 19. Uh, out of Jesus' mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Right? That this child is going to have has ultimate authority uh, that Satan only wishes he could have. But this child is caught up. That's Jesus' ascension. Uh, and the woman flees to a place prepared for her. Um, I believe that the child being caught up also going to sense be the rapture, right? Jesus' influence is removed from the world uh, through the Holy Spirit. But the woman flees to a place that's prepared for her. That Israel doesn't go up in that rapture with her child. That this woman remains on earth while her child goes up uh, to heaven to be on the throne. Um, and she has to go into the wilderness for three and a half years, as we'll see. But I think in some sense, and again, this is, you know, take it for what it's worth. But I believe Satan's focus, in some sense, has been on heaven's throne throughout all of history. I mean, obviously we know that, right? He's tried to usurp uh, God. He's tried to take over. He tries to create all these false religions and get people to be deceived. But that's his focus up until the midpoint of tribulation, if you look at these signs and the way they play out. Not to say that it still isn't there after this happens, right? But based on these things, uh, the signs we're reading and the future events, it seems that his whole focus isn't on the earth as his launching point. He still has access to heaven. He still goes and accuses the brethren, as we'll see. And so he's still trying to make some argument, some case in heaven, for why he should be the leader. To try and outsmart God, right? He still does all these wicked things on earth. Tricks men, deceives men, uh, tempts men, uh, has influence of powers and principalities, right? But that there's still this foot, this foot in heaven where he has this access and is trying to usurp God there, right? Uh, up until halfway through. You know, the church still exists today, even though Satan doesn't want it. Uh, God allows it, uh, the church to be here until it's time to go home, just like the rapture, right? Uh, just like it wasn't, it wasn't Jesus' time until it was the right time for him to be killed. Israel still exists, despite Satan's efforts throughout all of history. Um, you know, they've been afforded protection over the year. We see Nazis in the Middle East even today. But Satan, again, has had some form of access to heaven. Um, and if we can be as simple-minded as to make it one-dimensional and linear, that this is he's been so focused on the throne that earth hasn't been as full um, attention for his efforts yet. But we're going to see that that uh, comes to pass here in a minute. So let's go on verse 7. It says, the next page is where it says it. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was there a place for them in heaven any longer. The great dragon was cast out, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And this is something else interesting. It was interesting that there's signs in heaven. But in my mind, it's interesting that war broke out in heaven. We think of heaven as being this perfect place, this holy place, which it is. Uh, but in some sense, God has allowed evil in his presence, uh, as we'll see here in a minute. And then all of a sudden, war breaks out. That there's full-on war in heaven. That there are signs in heaven, and now there's war in heaven. It's not just on the earth. The spiritual war that rages, rages on earth. And one day it's going to spill over into heaven, and then be kicked out of heaven. 
and then be finalized here on Earth. And again, remember that we experience time linearly, right? We can't go back in time. We can't jump forward in time. We can only just keep going straight ahead. But from God's perspective, God sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So how these things play out from our perspective in time, I'm not 100% sure. But in heaven's time, God bless you, all these signs, these wonders, these wars, these things happen and they culminate at the middle of the tribulation here. And if we remember throughout history, Satan and his angels had access. Job And Job 1 says, now there was a day, and I don't know what day it is. Was it regularly? Was it every Saturday? Was it every Thursday? <laughs> was it just one day? Uh, was it this day? Uh, but the sons of God, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them, right? So Satan was able to get into heaven, even in Job's day. And the Lord said to him, you know, where are you coming from? And he goes, I'm coming from all over the world. And they have this conversation about Job, if you remember. But the point I'm trying to make is that Satan was able to get to heaven. Satan was able to wait in line. I don't know if he cut in line or whatever. Uh, you know, if he had, you know, speed pass like you get at the amusement parks. But he went right up and talked to God. And God said, hey, you know what? Have you seen Job? Right? That there's this access there that we, um, I think sometimes we forget about, at least up until the midpoint of the tribulation. And we're about to read it in a minute here that what is one of the names that we have for Satan? And that's the accuser of the brethren. Well, where does he accuse us? And who does he accuse us to? Well, he accuses us to the Father, not only to each other and not only to ourselves, but to the Father. And Jesus goes, no, you have no case. You have no case. And if you weren't sure that this dragon was Satan, the Bible makes it clear here, calls him the ancient serpent, the devil, right? This is the same being that was in the garden. This is why I hate depictions of dragons and them in culture. Now, was the serpent in the tree? Was that a dragon? And when God cursed him to the ground, his wings and his legs fell off and he had to go slithering on the ground? I don't know how that works, but the picture is there uh, that throughout the Bible, the dragon is Satan. Uh, and so why would I ever want, you know, I never want to watch a movie called How to Train Your Dragon, no matter how cute it is, right? But this is a war of angelic hosts. And again, I'm not going to get into it deeply, but Michael is the chief warrior angel, right? God's the, Jesus is the, the Lord of hosts, right? He's the Lord of heaven's army. He's the commander in chief, but Michael's like the general in chief, right? He's the general. And so he and the two thirds of heaven's angels go to war when Satan and his one-third of angels decide to go to war. They, remember if we read the Bible, it says that even Michael the archangel wouldn't rebuke Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you, right? Like, Michael doesn't take any authority himself. He's only going to attack Satan and kick him out when God says it's time. And, and now it's time. And I don't know how long the war rages. I don't know how long that plays out on earth. Was it a, a millisecond? But God's angels prevail. And Satan and his third are cast out of heaven right here. This, this political coup of Satan goes hot. That all these millennia is accusing the brethren. He's accusing God. He's giving an account. He's trying to, again, like I said before, he's trying to prove that he's, he's worthy of God's position, more worthy than God is, and trying to outsmart him. And this all crumbles. And so what happens? It turns to war. It turns to hot war. And they end up losing. And we can see this throughout our world with different forms of government where you know, let's talk across the aisle and we have political discourse where even in the 80s, you know, or 90s, you could have these political conversations across the aisle. But now there's a big chasm because it's clear how those sides are forming. And at some point, these talks eventually will break down 
and there could be fighting. Have you ever seen clips from other parliaments around the world? There's been like fist fights. It's crazy. You know, these representatives in other countries actually getting in fights. But eventually it'll turn into all-out war if things don't get better. Um, you know, if we've seen communist takeover, right? The People's Republic of China. It's not the People's Republic. It's Xi Jinping's republic, right? It's, you know, it's this misnomer. It used to be maybe a republic, but it was taken over at some point. But let's go on here. Uh, verse 10 through 12. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, he who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives until the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. That's awesome. His time is short. But this loud voice returns and talks about the authority of Christ has come to what? To silence and remove the accuser. That when Jesus' authority shows up, the accuser has no place. He's, his mouth is shut up and he is cast out of heaven for good. And no other authority can do that in our lives. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes, um, and then we'll come back in. But no other authority can do that. No self-help advice, no positive talk, no even good intentions can remove uh, you know, uh, wicked authority in our lives. Only the blood of Jesus and His Word can do that. You know, God has not given us that spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind in 2 Timothy 1.7. So when that fear, when those accusations come our way, we may hear it. And we may feel it, but God's blood, God's authority of his death and resurrection and his word in Jesus Christ, defend us. And that's the only thing that is our true defense. And that's why Michael says, even the archangel, who obviously is better at warfare, right? Even he doesn't bring any, uh, anything against Satan. He just lets God handle it. And we should, we should be the same way. We need to let God handle it in our lives. Don't be like these people who go around rebuking Satan. Don't even worry about it. Let the Lord rebuke him and you spend time with the Lord and seek the Lord to be the covering of your life. But the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. There's a song that is sung in the church that talks about it. And I, 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 don't, I can't always sing that line because of my position here. And I could be wrong. But the way I read this is that, you know, obviously the, God's blood is all that saved us as believers. We don't have to do anything else other than believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and confess with our mouth that he's Lord and we're done, right? We don't need the word of our, we don't need to go share our testimony. We don't have to go tell other people to go to heaven. Of course, we're going to, right? Because God's spirit dwells in us, because we've been saved. But we don't have to do anything. There's nothing that we do as a part of our redemption, right? But it says that the, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, right? Um, it, it doesn't save us, but I think in some sense... It plays that part in here with them. Um, and why I think here is, why I think that is because I think these are really about the tribulation saints, right? They've missed out on the church age. They've missed out on this free will period by the Holy Spirit. And it's come to a point where there's such wrath and judgment coming on the earth. The only way to really prove that they really believe is by believing, obviously, in the blood. By being outspoken despite death. And then, like it says, they love their lives to the death. Not all of us, that's the third point, is that not all of us are going to die as martyrs for Jesus, right? But these people do. 
They didn't love their life to the death. They're going to have to give up their life if they don't survive until the day Jesus comes back. Their death is going to probably be by the hand of um, the Antichrist for being a believer, right? They may not get hit by the mountain that gets thrown in the sea like the others do. They're not going to be tormented like those who have taken the mark, but they're going to risk their necks for their faith. Um, You know, even if they don't have to, they're not going to be able to buy or sell without it, right? So maybe they're going to starve for their faith and and say, I don't want, I'm not going to do it because I don't care if I die of starvation because I know Jesus is the truth and that he died for me. And if you remember early in Revelation, remember those martyrs we saw? They were given white robes and they said it wasn't until their time was fulfilled, right? That vengeance would be brought for them. I believe that this is what this is talking about here. Again, I could be wrong, but that's uh, my stance on it, right? And so when that song comes up, I can't sing those lyrics about the, blood, about the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I don't consider myself a tribulation saint, so I can't sing that song with the same uh, right there. But what a glorious way to go, to glorify God as a martyr, to die for your faith. Not that we should outwardly seek it like some people who would burn themselves to bring attention to their faith, but... Man, if, if that's what God has for us, what a, I couldn't think of a better way to go. How awful and how unfun it would be. But at the same time, what a way to give glory to God should he allow it. And it, the scripture says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and those who dwell there. I'm just looking for the time on the screen here. Rejoice, O heavens, and those who dwell there. But woe unto those who live on the earth and the sea. And it's interesting that uh, the creatures as well here are given a woe. You know, I don't know anybody who lives under the sea other than maybe SpongeBob. But it's interesting, uh, given all the UFO stuff you'll see in pop culture, that it's obviously demonic. But there's other things going on here about angels going up and down. But rejoice, O heavens, and those who dwell there. But woe unto you, earth, because you're facing not only God's wrath now, but all of Satan's wrath as well. All, Satan can't go into heaven. Satan can't come accused before God. So what's he going to do? He's going to turn his attention 100% on the earth. And it's obvious now. He's lost his freedoms. He no longer has that heavenly access. He knows he's only got a little time left. And isn't that a fantastic? Oh, there's only a little bit of time left. And we're not going to have to deal with sin, with temptation, with the effects of evil, these, this evil any longer, right? But he's going to use this time to build his army and to condemn as many souls as possible and persecute as many who is... Um, Go after God, right? Like, not all of us face persecution, but in that time, everyone's going to face persecution. That there's this spiritual holding back, as we looked at. The Holy Spirit prevents full out evil from taking over. The rapture, even the Antichrist, can't come around until after the Holy Spirit removes his influence, uh, his own influence. Uh, but the fact that we can tell our days are short, uh, and Satan's are as well. And before we go on, if you guys want to continue. Let's go on to verse 13. It says, uh, When the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time and from the presence of the serpent. Starts out, it says, when the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth, I think, you know, again, don't quote me, but I think this is I'm like, well, why would he just now see that he was cast down to the earth? Uh, was it like he got knocked out? <laughs> Did Michael really give him a good blow and, you know, gave him the boot out of heaven? <laughs> and he lands on earth and he's unconscious, so to speak. And he comes to and he goes, wait a minute, I'm on earth, right? 
and he realizes he's not in heaven anymore, that he's been beaten so bad that he can't even attack the angels anymore. And he's just, think of the, you know, the most rage-filled, like, ra- ah! and so he goes out and goes to attack the low-hanging fruit. I can't attack the angels. I have no access to heaven, so let me go attack the woman. You know, what an, what an unmanly, ungodly thing to do to go attack the woman. And that's the first thing that he goes for, right? Um, he, is, he is the worst. And so he goes after the Israel and the saints that remain. I believe that this is the mid-trib right here. And this is where perhaps the way, if, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to align things that maybe can't be aligned, but I think it's a healthy exercise to try and think of all these things happening together that we've been reading about and know about in Scripture, right? And perhaps this is where the Antichrist is fully possessed, if that's the case, by Satan, as opposed to just under his control, right? Because we know that there's this leader that comes up that's influenced by Satan. There's a false prophet and, all, and the system that comes about. He makes a pact with Israel that starts a seven-year tribulation. Halfway through, that's broken. And he by him stepping into the temple and claiming himself to be God, right? So what better act for Satan as his first act of being thrown back to earth and going after the woman? Well, what's who does the woman worship? The God of heaven, right? Even Israel, even the unbelieving Israel is trying to worship the God of heaven through this temple that he made a pact for them to go back in. So Satan indwells this man, perhaps, the Antichrist, goes in the temple and says, I am God, it's time for you all to worship me now, and you have no other choice, right? There is some sort of polypantheistic, you know, Jezebel system before that allowed everyone to worship and coexist with their bumper stickers other than Christianity, right? You know, you could have the Muslims, you could have this temple, you could worship whoever you want to worship, but now he's saying, nope, that's all over. This isn't working out. I'm God and you're going to worship me. Um, and so he does that, and I believe in some sense, as his first act against uh, the woman. If we remember, Satan wanted Moses' body after he died, right? If we read that weird little pack, uh, piece of scripture, I believe it's in Jude, right? Like, well, why do you want Moses' body, right? Well, to indwell him and to have this authority over God's people, right? So what is he doing? He's indwelling this person of authority and trying to take it over God's people in the world. And so what happens now? Israel and believers flee to the wilderness. And what did Jesus say? We've read it uh, plenty of times in Matthew 24. When you see the abomination of desolation uh, spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, Luke says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who's on the mountaintop, you know, don't take anything in your house. Just just go. Don't go home. Don't pack a bag. Just go. Meet your friends there. They should all know to go there. Um, and pray that your flight not be in winter or that you're not pregnant when you go to do this because I don't know that you want to be pregnant in the wilderness. But he's they're nourished there for three and a half years, right? That this, There's some sort of divine protection that keeps them safe and takes care of their needs there, right? Whether it's all spiritual, all practical, right? Remember some of the prophets of God, the ravens would come and bring him meat, right? Even uh, John the Baptist was like, that's God's provision. It's a locust and he eats it, right? I don't know that I see the locust in the spring as God's provision for me to eat, but maybe one day I'll be hungry enough and I hope that day never comes. Uh, but they have this divine protection. It says that they're given two wings of an eagle. You know, uh, does an actual eagle come? I don't think it's like Lord of the Rings where an eagle comes and grabs them, but do her allies come? Is it a couple of nations? Is it uh, Saudi Arabia? Are these people who are now like they were aligned with the Antichrist before as the new leader of the Western world and they were kind of with him. But now that this dude is claiming to be God on earth, 
we're not really going to support him anymore. And then you see all these infightings and the horns break off and all this other stuff that we see other places in scripture, right? So do they help Israel? I don't know. Um, uh, there's this theory of it being in Petra, this rock city in Jordan, cleft in the mountains. You remember in Indiana Jones, that rock city that they go to get the grail out of? That's Petra, right? Uh, and apparently, I don't know when, I don't know if it's still there, but Christians over time have stockpiled things there for this time for the people who would have to flee there. You know, they weren't just prepping for themselves. They were prepping for Israel. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. what We'll see. I think from heaven we'll see. But for some reason, you know, the, the dragon can't go there. The, maybe the dragon can't fit in the mountains. You know, he can't fly through there, so to speak. He's got other distractions, like I said, probably going on in the world, trying to get everyone under his sway, kill all these people who resist him, get rid of all the, uh, the governments that aren't now in line with him, right? It's not this perfect utopia. He's, he's trying to rule now with his own iron rod. Um, uh, you know, the two witnesses are happening during the second half of the tribulation, right? Uh, you know, uh, there's all these other things going right. He's preparing an army. So whatever reason he got, Israel leaves Jerusalem because they don't want it anymore. The temple's there anymore. They're gone. And for whatever reason, he lets them be there. Uh, obviously it's God's will, but, uh, the practical reasons why they're not attacked for three and a half years, I, d I don't know other than God's hand is on them. Uh, but let's go on verse 15 through 17. Then the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the flood, which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman, and he went to wage war with the remnant of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we see here the serpent spews water out of his mouth uh, when the time is right, right? I think it's interesting. One, you know, we see dragons in the in pop culture. Fire comes out of their mouth, right? But out of this dragon's mouth, water comes out. And I think water is interesting for a, a few reasons. One, God has a fiery sword, uh, so in some sense, it's supposed to be some antithesis to God's word. It's like the opposite of God's word, right? Uh, but we also see the water of the word, right? He's trying to impersonate what God's word is. Uh, we also know that God destroyed the world the first time with a flood, and now Satan's trying to do his own flood. Uh, but it's a false impersonation of God and, he, and trying to get rid of God's people, right? It's a false impersonation of those who would rebel against him. You know, is this a huge political campaign? Again, we're talking about a sign in heaven. The sign in heaven is the dragon. It's not necessarily a physical dragon on earth. It's a sign in heaven. So how is it playing out on earth? Is it a huge political propaganda campaign coming out of his mouth now, not just the false prophet's mouth, uh, to malign the people of the world and make his case to the world? Why? He should go after Israel. Why he should go after the church, right? Um, uh, to make himself look good to the whole world. Uh, is it a scientific truth campaign against these people genetically or spiritually, right? They didn't take the mark. They're unclean. They're deplorables, right? Political candidate. They're deplorables. Anyone who wouldn't vote for me. Maybe even there's actual flooding. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the case. I don't know if that's the case, but maybe it is. The whole world is afraid of another flood from global warming. Maybe he gets some big pipes and tries to fill up the valley if they're in a valley. I don't know. Uh, but the earth, I'm sorry, jumping ahead one more. There's, maybe there's an army ready to go in. Maybe there's an army ready to chase them in, both uh, physical and spiritual. But the earth helps the woman. The earth swallows up this flood that is trying to take out God's people. And it's interesting that the earth helps people and not people helping the earth. 
like we're told we need to do today. Not that we're not to take care of it, but man, God set up the earth to take care of us, and he's even going to use it to take care of his people in the end. And if we read, I won't do it for time, but if you look at Numbers chapter 16, 20-33, when the, John, you know, the people came against Moses, right? What did God do? God opened up the earth. The people who were against Moses and wanted to rule themselves and full of idolatry, what? Fell into the earth. The mouth of the earth opened up and swallowed them all up. And everyone else was like, all right, I'm good. I'm good with you, Moses. I don't want to get swallowed up by the earth, right? And the commentary brings up Isaiah 59, 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against them. When the enemy comes up a flood, the spirit of the Lord gets in the way. Then any physical water is swallowed up. The troops can't get in. Whatever is trying to go after the people here on earth uh, does not prevail. That God stops it with the earth. Again, God likes to use these natural things, right, to protect his people. He uses the plagues. He uses uh, the Red Sea to swallow up the Pharaoh's army. Uh, God made the earth, so why wouldn't God use the earth as a part of his power, right? We think that it's always got to be this flash of God. Well, God uses the natural to provide uh, spiritual protection, even in supernatural ways like this. But it says that the dragon was angry with the woman. Well, I don't know what he was before, but he's angry now. If he wasn't angry before, he's angry now. And again, he couldn't attack God in heaven anymore, so he tries to attack the woman. Now that he can't attack the woman here in Israel, he goes after those who are around the world. Uh, He keeps losing, and so he keeps picking on the lesser and lesser in the world, right? What a bully. Um, And so he wages war directly with all believers, Messianic and Gentile alike. Again, if there was religious freedom before, there's none now. He's going to attack anyone who resists, anyone who believes in anything else. There's no more option, opportunity for that. Is this when he demands the mark be taken? I don't. I, again, I don't know where that lines up in it, but this would make sense in some degree to me, right? Like, well, now that I'm God, you have to take a mark to prove, right? Like, I don't know how it all plays out. There's a, probably better scholars out there, out there for that. But again, I think it's healthy to, to think about it and try and put those puzzle pieces together. But as we close, I want to read a couple of verses. Uh, Proverbs 28, 15. As a roaring lion and a ranging bear, so is a wicked ruler over the poor people. First, and people are going to be poor in these last days. They're going to be dependent on the government for things. First Peter 5, 9. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Resist the devil, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That we need to, that the devil goes about, like I didn't copy the whole thing, that he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Peter says to resist him. Uh, knowing that the same sufferings, right? Like Satan goes around the world right now with those gummy teeth without any real teeth trying to devour us all, but he can't. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer for our faith. That doesn't mean that uh, us in America are not going to be persecuted. People losing their heads right now for our faith. And if America doesn't change course, our assault on freedom of speech, on freedom of religious expression is not going to end. And it could be a time here when we have to choose not just whether we want to take a vaccine to keep our job or not, but whether we want to stay with Jesus and keep our job or not. I think that the worst is going to happen in the tribulation. That doesn't mean that those things won't happen here uh, at the hand of our fellow countrymen. Luke 21, 28 says, Now when you see these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws on. I know that this is a hard message and it's hard to think about these and it's you know, a downer in one sense because it's so brutal. But in the other sense... Our redemption draws nigh. 
that we have assurance that we don't have to go through these things, that our hope is in heaven, that even if we experience tribulation and the enemy coming after us, that we know that we know what happens in the end. His time is short. It's over. He doesn't win. Even if we die, we're not devoured. If we die, <laughs> fantastic. We're in heaven. It might hurt. It's not going to be fun to be tortured or beheaded or any other thing that they're going to... I don't even want to think about the things that they can do, but heaven is going to be on your side. Let that be your hope. If that happens one day, let that be your hope. Heaven is on the other side of this. It's only going to hurt for a moment, and then I'll be home, right? But Revelation 12, 12, let's read it again. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. And when this happens, heaven rejoices. Satan's out. Time's almost up. It's the two-minute warning for this game. If you like football, I don't like football, but I know the two-minute <laughs> warning is it. It's the, la- it's the final lap, right? And the race is almost over, and we know who wins. So with that being said, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for this time together and for, uh, God, having a little extra time in your Word. I appreciate everyone listening uh, for this time and their attention. But God, may you use your Word. Would you let it Uh, like it was prayed before, uh, let it be your word that sticks with us, that we remember, that we hang on to, that we uh, feast on this week. Uh, God, we love you. We trust you. Bless all those who hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light.